Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. All right. Good morning, Ascent. Hey, I'm going to do one of these awkward pastor things where I tell you to talk to your neighbor. So just bear with me. Uh, I want you to look at your neighbor and say, it looks like you missed an hour of sleep last night. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but uh, that's, I wake up at uh, 6.15 usually on Sunday mornings, and then it hit me when I was going to sleep last night. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be waking up at 5.15 tomorrow morning. Uh, but hey, you guys, you look good. You look, you, I don't know how you're feeling, but you look good, and uh, super excited you guys are here. I'm excited to be here for a couple of reasons, starting a brand new series, and after today's message at noon, we're having our first family meal of the season. And uh, because of COVID, it's our first family meal in like forever. Uh, And so some of you maybe have forgotten what a family meal is or you weren't here and we used to have those. Uh, And it's really one of my favorite things we do at Ascent. Uh, We come together and it's potluck style. We share a meal together and there's really no pressure. So we we don't do like a a Bible study. We're going to be asked questions. We hang out, we spend time together, and then we take communion together. It's the, the environment in which we as the church remember our Lord's sacrifice uh, through the bread and through the wine, because we're Baptists, through the crackers and the grape juice. Uh, thank you. Uh, and, and so I'd love for you to be there. It's going to be at noon at the, actually the Woodward Event Center. That way we're giving you guys some time to go home. Uh, if you want to run by Walmart and grab some Tostitos and some of the cheese dip and warm it up and act like you made it, you can do that. Whatever you want to do, uh, meet us over there at the event center at noon. It's going to be awesome. Uh, it's usually about an hour. I try really hard to keep us to time. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you can't stay and talk. Some people, like my brother Rick Hay, will be there probably till 7 o'clock at night uh, because he's good at conversating. Uh, but if you want to come just for an hour or so, you can. Uh, so I'd love to see you there at noon. Now, the second reason I said I was excited is because we're starting a brand new series, and we are, and it's called Sacred Moments. And really, it's a series within our series of the Gospel of Mark. We're finishing up Mark as we have about three weeks until Easter. And in this series, we're looking at the final week of Jesus's life. Uh, And what's really interesting in all of the Gospels, including Mark, is the Gospel writers go through the first 33 years of Jesus's life relatively fast. It goes all the way up, and then we get to the final week, and all the Gospels spend a whole bunch of time on the final week of Jesus's life. Why? Because these are the sacred moments. These are, from a Christian perspective, the moments in which all of history is about to climax. The whole story of everything for 10,000 years prior, 20,000 years, from the beginning of the earth prior to the end of earth, all the way that way, the center of everything is this week. And in this week, Jesus teaches us a lot about what it means to live as his followers. And today we're coming across one of the most famous stories in the Gospel of Mark, and we're coming across some of the, the weirder kind of questions that we might have as we come to the Gospel of Mark And that is the widow's mite, which is literally in our dictionary now, uh, if you look it up, because it's such a famous story in our culture. As we look at this poor widow who gives everything she has, and she's compared to these scribes, these Pharisees, uh, who give a lot of money, but it's all for show. And as we look at this story, all of it, we're going to see what it looks like to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. As we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, I am more convinced than ever that for some of you, you are going to actually take the step of living like you believe in Jesus. In other words, you've believed, you've had the mental side of Jesus for a long time, but you've never actually put him in the center of your life and lived as though you believed that he was the king of the universe. And Jesus is calling us into that today. 
And all of us, I'm actually going to begin at the end of the story where it talks about the scribes and the widow, because all of us fall into one of those two categories. I would assume all of us, maybe you're here today and you're a skeptic, you don't believe in Jesus at all. I'm so glad you're here. I'll never force you to believe anything. You come hang out with us as long as you want. But my bet would be that most of us in this room are people who, to some extent, believe in God. But the question is, is do we just believe that or do we believe in such a way that it actually affects the way that we live our lives? So I want to start at the end and then I'm going to show you three things that I believe the the widow understands to live the way she does. And three things we must understand if we're going to live as true, genuine followers of Jesus. And then at the very end, I'm going to show you that the widow represents somebody far more powerful, far greater than any of us. But before I do any of that, like every week, I like to pray. I feel like that's why we read the Bible before I get up here every week. And I pray because like, hey, nothing else really matters after that. At least you, you heard the scriptures and I prayed. And uh, what, what could possibly go wrong after that? Well, what could go wrong is you give a guy with ADHD the microphone. But that's beyond the point. Let's pray. Father God, I need you. I desperately, desperately need you as I stand up here. Lord, I uh, spend all week doing the best I can to prepare to preach your word. But ultimately, my words are powerless. They're just the words of a human. Uh, Lord, but your spirit can speak to people in a way that I cannot. Lord, you can penetrate the hearts of people. Lord, one message to somebody can mean nothing to another person. It can be life-changing. Lord, I pray that today you would change the life of somebody. Irregardless of my oratory skill today, Lord, I pray that you would, you would speak into the heart of somebody here today who's just on the edge, just on the edge of giving you their whole entire life, and they're tired of just giving enough so that they can maintain control. Lord, I pray that we would see you as worthy of control in our lives. And we would surrender and submit to that control in our lives. We would admit our powerlessness. And we would give power to you and you alone in our lives. Lord, let us be like this widow who gave all that she had. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So as we come to the end of chapter 12, uh, Jesus has just, we're about to look at it in a minute, but Jesus has just taken out all of his opponents one by one. Bradley's telling me it flies down. That's literally my worst fear as a preacher. It just happened. Mark chapter 12. Can't make this stuff up. I want you guys to try really hard to focus now. Mark chapter... It's something new every week. Is it not? All the technology works and the pastor's flies down. So. It happens. Mark chapter 12, at the, uh, before we get to this section in Scripture, Jesus has just verbally uh, taken out all of his opponents. And uh, now he's standing in the temple, he's, he's preaching, and in verse 38, uh, he says this. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show they will receive harsher judgment. And we see in that section what Jesus has been saying throughout the whole Gospel of Mark, which is what? That those who are first in this world will be last in my kingdom. Like, I see through them. I know they, they know all the right spiritual words to say. They give money. They pray really long, beautiful prayers. But I see through it. I know exactly who they are and what they want. They don't care about me. They want your praise. And they want to be considered first. And Jesus says, you know what? They can have it. Because in my kingdom, those who are the greatest will actually be the least. And then we see an example of that, verse 41. Sitting across the temple treasury, 
He watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. If I was a certain type of televangelist at this point, I would say, now God watches when you give, so be sure to give big. But I'm not that kind of preacher, so I'm not going to say that. Although I've kind of always wanted to. Uh, just be like, just go complete televangelist one Sunday on you guys. Um, but I'll spare you that. Uh, many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. And they're worth so little that we, we don't even really have a, a word to put for it. If you have an ESV, it might say pennies, but it's really less than that. So uh, we're going to see in a little bit a denarius, which is one day's wage. Uh, this is one sixty-fourth of a denarius. This is so, 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 so very tiny what this woman has and what she puts into the treasury. Two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, that's how we know this is important, what he's about to say. He said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, what I want you guys to understand is this text is not about money. It is about money, but it's far greater than money because the actual word here. Uh, is bios in the Greek, which literally means life. What Jesus says here is she doesn't just put in all she had to live on. Uh, what the, the text actually says is she put in her very life into the offering. And what Jesus means is that vastly different than the way the scribes gave, and let's be honest, vastly different than the way you and I give, is she didn't just give out of her margin, she gave everything. So in other words, it's one thing for me to give a percentage of my income because I give out of that percentage, but I'm not worried about eating on Monday, right? Like it doesn't affect the amount of clothes that I wear. It doesn't affect my next vacation. It doesn't affect the way my life goes. I'm still going to pay all my bills. The lights are going to be on. Everything's going to be on. And I gave a percentage of my money. Jesus says, no, that's one thing. But what this woman does is far beyond that. She shows true faith in God because by giving these two coins, she has to trust in God for her very food the next day. And very rarely do we give in such a way that it doesn't just come from our margin, but it comes from everything. Like, when's the last time we gave in such a way that we actually felt it, that it hurt us, that we had to trust God? See, see, it doesn't take faith to give when the math works. It takes faith to give when the math doesn't work. That's when you have to say, God, I surrender control. And this is why, I'll just give you the point of the message right now. This is why some of you will be content believing that Jesus is who he says he is, but you'll never live like it. Because to live like it, you know what you have to do? You have to surrender control. And we are terrified of giving up control. Yeah, we make up all sorts of excuses for why we don't give up control. But at the end of the day, it's just because we are deathly afraid. Because we're walking on the tightrope and Jesus has to catch us. See, it's one thing getting to the edge of the building. It's another thing jumping and hoping the parachute works. My, my wife skydives. I don't. You know why? Because she's crazy. No. <laughs> She has more faith than I do in the parachute. I believe that the parachute catches somebody, but I'm not jumping out of the plane myself, right? I want to stay in the plane. Jesus here is saying this widow hasn't just said, I believe in the parachute. She's jumped out of the plane. She's put faith in it. Now, I want to ask you guys, when's the last time you showed authentic faith in Jesus? Now, it could be with your money. Like money is a big one for a lot of us. I don't want to give if it's going to affect the way I live my life. That, that, for some of you, that might be where God's like calling you to do it. But I want to tell you, it's everywhere in life. When is the last time you gave God some time that you didn't have as margin, right? Like it's one thing to show up on Sunday for an hour when you got nothing else going on. 
It's another thing to, to give up some of your time during the week when you, you could be working or you could be answering emails or you could be answering phone calls to go and pray. Because to the world, that looks ridiculous. You're just talking to the sky. There's no point in what you're doing. You're wasting time. But if I believe in God, I believe in the power of God, then I'm going to give up time that I could be using elsewhere because I know I'm too busy to not be praying. I need God's, I need to rely on his power that much. Or, or here's a big one that's on my own heart this week as I've been thinking about this. God is very clear in his word that I am to confess my sins to everybody so that I might be healed. Not, not to everybody, to people. There's, a, there's a, a venue. I'm not supposed to confess my sins to everybody on the stage. That'd be awkward for all of us. But that there should be people in my life who authentically know me fully. That those closest to me should not just know a piece of Blake Farley, but they should know the whole of Blake Farley, like the good and the bad. And I got to be honest with you guys, I am terrified sometimes to take the mask fully off. Right? Like it's okay for me to show you a little bit of my sin, but I can't let them see all of my thoughts. I can't let them see all of my sin. I can't take this mask completely off. I'd, I'd be so ugly. I'd terrify the people. And yet God says, no, no, no. In my kingdom, the way to find healing is to be truly and fully yourself with others in my kingdom. Amen. And you know why I'm so afraid to do that? Because I'm afraid to give up control. When I got my mask on, I can control what you think about me. When I take the mask off, I have no idea what you're going to think about me. You see what Jesus says in all areas of life The way to live is not like the scribes for show, but like the widow giving your bios, your life to God. And as we jump into the start of this section of scripture, Mark chapter 12, verse 13, I want to look at three things that will give us the confidence to do this. And I just want you to be honest with yourself. I'm not going to talk to you personally about it after the message, but I want you to ask yourself, am I more like the scribes? Kind of got a mask on doing this for a show. Or am I like the widow actually living like I believe this? Am I in the airplane or have I actually jumped out and I'm trusting in the parachute? Mark chapter 12, verse 13. What Jesus does here is amazing. He's like Yoda times 100. Because uh, he's going to put the Pharisees and the Herodians in their place. Verse 13. Then they, they being the, the temple leaders, remember they're mad at Jesus because he basically said, we don't need the temple anymore. And they're like, well, that's how we make our money. So we're going to kill you. Uh, that's the Blake paraphrase. You could read it yourself. Verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came to him, they said to him, teacher. Now, first they butter Jesus up a little bit here. Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. How many of you guys, when somebody starts complimenting you, you're like, "Uh oh, something's coming. Uh, <laughs> I can just imagine Jesus going, okay, just get to the point, boys. What, what are you going to do here? They're like, we, we know that you, you don't care about what the crowd says or what the Roman authorities say. And then they ask this loaded question, totally loaded in their, in their, um, in their society. Like, I tried to think of what it would be like in ours. And I thought about every time a pastor is on national television, the question they ask him, if it's like a secular news channel, it doesn't matter what he's promoting, or what he's there for. It seems like they always ask him his opinion on homosexuality and homosexual marriage without giving adequate time to explain any, anything about the belief. It's like you've got 15 seconds to answer it, and we're going to hate you no matter what, right? Because you're going to answer one way, you're going to make this half of the world mad. You answer this way, you're going to make this side of the world mad. It's a great question to ask. It's a question that should be asked, but it's not a question you can answer in 15 seconds. And in this society, the question of, is it lawful to pay taxes is that kind of question. Because for the Jewish people, they believed that by even having a denarius, which had a, a picture of Caesar on it, for a lot of the population, it was blasphemous. 
In fact, there was a revolution that had just happened uh, not too long before Jesus in which a lot of Jews lost their life because they wouldn't pay the Roman tax because they believed by doing that, they were idolaters. And so Jesus has got all the Jewish people watching him who are very, very anti-tax. Like they're going to be mad if Jesus even says you can have a denarius. And then he's got the Roman authorities over here who are saying, you want to incite another revolution? We'll kill everybody. So Jesus is stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the Herodians and the Pharisees, they know it. They come to Jesus and they ask him this question like, we've got him. This is the trap we've been waiting for. And then what Jesus does is absolutely masterful. I love Jesus. It says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy. We're going to see why they're hypocrites in just a second. This is great. He said to them, why are you testing me? Then he says this, bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Now, if we were back in Jesus' time and I had to scroll a mark and I had it open and I was reading it, you guys all would have burst out in laughter there. We would have had to have waited a minute. You know why? Because they're trying to trap Jesus with a denarius. And Jesus says, I don't have a denarius, but I know you boys do. Could you bring me one? And so now these guys who are trying to trap Jesus with a denarius have to pull a denarius awkwardly out of their pocket and go, uh, yeah, here you go, Jesus. And then with the denarius, uh, he says this. It says, they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? Jesus asked them. Caesar's, they reply. And now he does something that is utterly amazing. This is great what Jesus does. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Why were they amazed at him? Well, Jesus says, give me a, give me a denarius. And the denarius has a picture of the Roman Empire on it. He says, okay, it's got Caesar's picture on it. So give it back to Caesar. And then he says, give to God what is God's. What's amazing about that? Well, if we go back to the Jewish scripture, all the way to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says this about the, the creation account. Chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, it says, So God created man, look at this, in his own image. He created in him the image of God. He created them male and female. So the image on the coin is Caesar, give it to Caesar, but the image on Blake is God, so give it to God. The image on the coin is Caesar, but the image on you is God, so give it to God. See, what the widow understands, the scribes don't, is that she belongs to God. See, the, the, the scribes think they have things that belong to them, and they're like, here, God, look at me, I'm so righteous, you can have a piece of what is mine. And the widow says, no, I understand that I'm a piece of what is God's. The image on me is God, so I will return my whole life, my whole bios back to this God. And we see that as we continue on because the Sadducees, who are another group of religious people, come and try to trap Jesus. And the same kind of result comes out of it. And that is, I don't have things that belong to me. All that I am actually belongs to God, which is a huge mindset shift. Because if I belong to God and nothing actually belongs to me, then it becomes a lot easier to give all that I am to him. It's not my time anyways. It's the breath in my lungs comes from him. So it's not very hard for me to give him what is already his. It's not my money anyways. It's going to be here when I leave. It's, it's God. So it's not very hard to give it to God. Go on and on and on. It's not that hard to give it to God when you realize that things don't belong to you, but you're actually the one who belongs to God. And as we continue on, it says this, verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 18, Sadducees. So we kind of think of these uh, as different denominations where it's like the Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, like Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, but it's, it's actually not like that at all. Uh, it's, it's more like kind of the political parties of today, like Republican, Democrat, because in our mind, we separate spirituality and secular. Like, here's my spiritual stuff. Here's my secular stuff. 
But in the ancient world, they were one and the same. So like the religious leaders had a huge say in how we actually lived our life, the policies that would affect their lives. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians, all because of their different philosophies and theologies, made a big difference. And the Jewish people, much like we as people choose a, a political party to align ourselves with, would choose a theological party to align themselves with. And there'd be arguments fighting back and forth. And the Sadducees were known for this. It says the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, clapping. That's probably the corniest thing I've ever said up here. It's just there for me. Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, which, interesting enough, the theological uh, liberals in our day and age, when I say that, I'm not talking politics at all. I'll get that out of your mind when I say liberal and conservative. I'm talking about those who are more liberal with the biblical text uh, are the ones who believe there isn't a resurrection. But actually, in Jesus' day, it was the opposite. The Sadducees are the conservatives. Uh, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they believe that those books are the only authoritative word of God. Other stuff, that's okay, but it's not the word of God. And in the first five books of the Bible, you can't find anything that would say that resurrection happens. That actually comes later in the prophets. And you can find some things alluding to it in the Torah, but not really conclusive. And so the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. Uh, But instead of just coming out and asking Jesus about the resurrection, they go around it with this really weird story about a poor woman who's had seven husbands die. Let's read it. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies, this is quoting in Deuteronomy, leaving a wife behind, but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, this is really weird in our culture. But in their culture, if, uh, if your brother was married and he died, I'm supposed to go marry his wife. I know, it's odd. Uh, but you have to think about their mindset. Because for the Sadducees, since there wasn't a resurrection, how do you go on? What, what, how does my name continue on? Well, it's through bearing children. So I'm a bad brother if I don't help my brother carry on the Farley name. Because he dies. His legacy dies if I don't help him out with that. So the Sadducees say, this is what Moses told us to do. There were seven brothers. They start this weird story. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. Which, I mean, can you imagine being the seventh brother? Like, I don't know. My, my first six brothers died with you. I think I'm going to pass on this one. <laughs> Just kind of an odd story. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? So they're trying to put Jesus in a trap, right? Jesus, you believe in the resurrection. So is this lady going to have seven husbands in the resurrection? What's going to happen, Jesus? I believe that's how they talked. Verse 24, Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? I love this. He roasts them here. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. (laughs) You guys need to go back to school. Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, look, this is important. He's not saying we are angels in heaven. This is not a message about heaven, the afterlife, or the new kingdom. I could say a lot about it, but that's not what Jesus is trying to get across here. We're not like, we are like angels. We are not angels. We're above angels. In fact, in other parts of the Bible, they say, it says we will rule over angels. Don't ask me what that means. I have no idea. It's mind blowing, but we are above angels. So what does he mean? They're like angels. Well, he means in this regard and the fact that angels 
don't belong to anybody. They're not married. Who is all of their focus and attention on? It's on God. See, what Jesus is doing here is actually really powerful. Uh, he's, He's really raising the status of this woman more than anything else. Because you'll notice the Sadducees aren't concerned at all with the woman, are they? Like, they, they don't care. They, they're worried about the brother who has no offspring. They're not worried about the woman who is, would have been completely shamed in her culture for not being able to have a child. And even at the very end, their question is, who will she belong to in, in the heaven, in the resurrection, in the new kingdom? Like, she's an object for them to hold on to. Which of the seven brothers gets to claim her? And Jesus says, I'll tell you who she belongs to. Me. That in your patriarchal society, it's different. The woman belongs to the man. But I'm telling you, that's not how it is in my kingdom. In my kingdom, nobody belongs to anybody except for me. I am solely and wholly property of God. How powerful is that, friends? That is huge. Just like he said with the coin, the image of God on me. Why? Because I belong to God. Who do I belong to? I belong to God. And here's, here's why this is so freeing, because look at what he says next. Jesus actually answers the question they were really asking. He's like, you knuckleheads just wanted to ask me about the resurrection, but you weren't brave enough to ask me, so I'm just going to give you the answer anyways. Verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So what's interesting about this is if I were going to prove that resurrection were real and I were Jesus, I would say, hey, guys, about eight days from now, come back to me because uh, you're going to really understand that the resurrection is real because I'm about to do it. So whatever you guys think, just wait a minute. Uh, but that's not what he does. He goes to the character of God and he says this. He says he calls back to the quote in Exodus where God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, when God said that to Moses, everybody knew that Isaac, Jacob, and Abraham were dead. They were in the ground. They were dust. They were over. And the insinuation is, Jesus is saying, but God says, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. I am presently the God, and he's not the God of the dead, so they still must be living in some way. And what Jesus would say to all of us is, although our flesh dies, our spirit lives on. That this is not the end. And one day, our bodies will rise to a new body and a new creation. Now, here's why that's so powerful. Because if death isn't the end for me, then nobody can own me. You see, the Sadducees hated the idea of resurrection because they were some of the most powerful people in the world. They were rich. They were wealthy. And the way they could lord over people is by saying, we will kill you if you don't do what we say to do. It's the way the Roman Empire lorded over people. We will kill you if you don't do what we say to do. By the way, it's the way people still in power to this day lord it over us. We will take your life if you don't do what we say to do. And what Jesus says here is, if there is no death, if actually death is for our benefit, then what can this world do to me? Nothing. (laughs) That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, I have purpose now and I have no fear tomorrow. What are you going to do? Chop my head off? Great. I'll be with the Lord of the universe. Oh, you're going to let me live? Awesome. Even better. I'll continue spreading the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's like, what can you do with a guy like that? You can't do anything with him because he has no fear. And here's the thing. If you view yourself as belonging to God, then you don't have to worry about it. But if you view everything around you as things that belong to you, then when you die, so do your belongings. Like there's, there's nothing that goes with us into the casket. There's just not enough room. Except for the tuxedo you're wearing and a few notes from your loved ones. But if I belong to God, 
and God is the God of the living, then I have every reason in the world to believe that when I die, I will die physically, but I will not be dead spiritually. I will be more alive than I've ever been in my entire life. You don't have to cry for me because I'll be face to face with my creator. I'll be crying tears of joy, not tears of sorrow in those moments. Absolutely beautiful. So Jesus has put the Sadducees in their place. He's put the the Pharisees and the Herodians in their place. And then verse 28, one of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is listen, O Israel. And by the way, what he's doing here is he's quoting the Shema, which Orthodox Jewish people today still start every service by reciting the Shema. It's the the most important command in the Jewish faith. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And because there's only one God, you can focus all your attention in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, which actually isn't in the Shema. Jesus added this. With all your mind, intellectually, and with all your strength. The second is, I love this, the guy says, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And he gives him two. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And the reason he gives him two is because those two are inseparable. That the way you love God is by loving others. In fact, we find out in Matthew chapter 25 that some of us, maybe possibly in this room on the day of judgment, are going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, I do not know you. And we're going to be like, what? What do you mean? He said, well, when I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you did not give me something to drink. And we'll say, Jesus, when did we see you? Like, if you showed up, I would have gave you a place to stay. I would have gave you clothing. I would have gave you something to drink. And then Jesus is going to turn. He's going to look at some of us. And he's going to say, whenever you didn't do these for the least of these, it was as though you weren't doing it for me. That Jesus is so connected with the poor, the oppressed, the hurting in the world, that when we don't love them the way we're, not, we're supposed to, we're actually not loving Jesus the way we're supposed to. That to love the Lord our God with everything just automatically means that I'm loving the least of these. I'm loving others in that way. And then the scribe said to him, this is verse 32, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. There is one else. There's no one else, rather, except for him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is what the other side of the argument would have said. There was a, a Jewish sect that said that the loving God and loving others is more important. And the other people said, well, we've got to have the burnt offerings and the sacrifices because that's how we're made right with God. And Jesus says, well, we don't actually need the burnt offerings and the sacrifices anymore. Why? Because Jesus comes as the ultimate sacrifice. See how beautiful this is? He clears up so much for us. By coming and living the life we couldn't live and dying the death I deserve to die, I don't have to worry about the wrath of God and making sure I have all my sacrifices, right? I get to focus solely on what? Loving Jesus and loving like Jesus. But quite honestly, I think some of us would rather just be able to do the sacrifices than actually having to love Jesus and love like Jesus. And that's what we find out about the scribe because look at what it says. After that, verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. You are not far from the kingdom of God. But he's not in the kingdom of God. Why? Well, the the verbiage in this text shows us that the man intellectually grabbed it. But intellectually grabbing it is just one part. What has been the whole point of this message? Simply that it's different to believe and living like you believe. 
There's a vast difference in Blake Farley saying I believe these things because to be honest with this, we have churches full of people who can answer a theological test correctly. Like I could ask some questions about the Bible and they could rattle through a hundred questions and get it completely right. And yet they don't actually live as though they believe it. And that's the point of believing. It's important that we believe the right things. Yes. But when you get to before your heavenly father, your Lord Jesus, he's not going to ask you a theological test. It's not like a magic password where you're like, okay, I know the right things to say, so I'm good. No, Jesus is going to say, did you trust in me? Did you put me at the center of your life? Did you have enough faith to believe I was who I said I was? Because if you did, then you would live your life in a different way. Heard a really interesting story uh, this week. A guy named Charles LeBlond. He was a uh, tightrope walker, walker in 1839. Uh, he walked across the Niagara Falls multiple times. He had a tightrope. He'd walk across it. And uh, crowds came and they, they just kept growing and growing and growing to watch him do this. Well, after time, you know, Charles, you can only do it so many times where people are like, okay, we've seen that trick. What's next? And so he started adding things. You know, he's like a wheelbarrow going across. He's making an omelet while he's going. To, I'm, not, I'm just kidding about the omelet part. But he, he's doing a whole bunch of different stuff as he goes across and, and kind of running out of ideas towards the end of the summer. And so he says, how many of you think I can carry a person on my back across the tight wire? And uh, everybody says, yeah, we think you can. Woo. And of course, he had no plan for <laughs> who he was going to put on his back. Right. Uh, but he thought, OK, we got to do this. So he turned to his man- manager, Harry. He said, Harry, we got we to do this. We got to find somebody who's willing to get on my back to, as I walk across this tightrope to do it. And uh, so they, they put in the newspaper one thousand dollars. This is eighteen hundreds. thousand dollars is a bunch of money uh, to anybody who will get on uh, Charles back as he walks across this tightrope across the Niagara Falls. Uh, and, and of course you might plummet 290 feet to your death, uh, but you'll be really rich if you don't. And they actually had quite a few people show up, like a dozen or so crazy out of their minds. People showed up, uh, to the meeting, uh, and answered the call. So they'd be interested in a thousand dollars. So Charles doing a little practice run, takes a 200 pound sack, uh, and he puts it on his back just to show the guys that he can do it. He walks across, everything's perfect. And then Charles goes down the line man by man. And he says, do you believe without a doubt I could carry you on my back across the tightrope. And man by man said, yes, we believe without a doubt you can do it. And then he said, he went back down the line, 12 men, and he said, will you be the man that I put on my back? And they all said, not on your life. (laughs) No chance. Because it was one thing to see it in the newspaper and show up. It was another thing to hear the roaring water and see themselves actually having to get on the back and be on the tightrope behind this guy. You see, Jesus is asking us to get on his back. There's a difference, friends, in getting there and saying, yeah, okay, I, I read the newspaper, I read the gospel, I see what Jesus says, I see what he says about money, I'm supposed to trust him with that, I see what he says about time, I'm supposed to trust him with that. Okay, yeah, Blake, the, the point of it is to love Jesus with all your heart and love others. Okay, I get it. Okay, now go do it. Amen. Do you see the difference, friends? Because if I really believe it, then the actual outflow will be I actually do it. See, the, the, the person who thinks that it's the amount of faith I can show the world. Like, I don't doubt it at all. I love God. God is number one in my life. And they're just so happy about telling you what God does, but they're, they're mean and crusty and just kind of look like a terrible person to be around. And they don't ever love anybody. That person doesn't get it. The person who gets it is the person who's full of doubts, full of, I don't know for sure if this is right, but I'm going to take another step following Jesus. The person who gives and has to trust Jesus in their money. The person who gives up time and has to trust Jesus in their time. The person who faces their fear of control and surrenders it to the Lord is the person who gets it. Regardless of how many doubts they have, it's just to have enough faith to actually follow Jesus in life and do the things that he said to do. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
who we believe helps us in all of these steps. The woman understood this. The widow understood that it wasn't just about having the right words to say, but it was living as though you believed. And then we go into verse 35. And I'll admit this is a little bit weird for our culture, but I think it's really important to stick with me as I explain it. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Now, in the the Jewish culture, they were expecting the Messiah to be a continuation of what King David had started. That's why uh, last week in uh, chapter 11, verse 9, when they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, they say, blessed is the one who comes in in our father David's kingdom. In other words, this Messiah is going to continue the kingdom. And what they thought is Jesus was going to ride in on his donkey, punch the Roman Caesar in the face, take the throne, and uh, Jewish people were going to rule the world for the rest of eternity uh, under Jesus' reign. This is what they were expecting. So Jesus comes and he says, I am not the son of David, which we know from all other New Testament texts that Jesus is indeed the son of David in the flesh, that David is his great, 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 great times 100 grandpa, that he actually came from the line of David. But what Jesus is talking about here is not in the flesh. He's talking about kind of politically or spiritually. I come as one greater than David. That in David's psalm of 110, he's talking not to his son, but he's talking to his Lord. You'd never call your son Lord because the Lord is greater than you. And Jesus says, when it comes to the world, I am not here to fit David's agenda. David was a part of my agenda. See, yes, by the flesh, I'm the son of David, but by the spirit, I'm the son of God. See, Jesus actually answers the question that the Pharisees asked him a couple chapters ago. By what authority do you do this? Jesus is now answering it as he has stolen their pulpit, right? He's preaching and he's, he's gotten rid of all of them. And he steps up to the mic and he's like, all right, I'm ready now. And he says, my authority is that I'm not just a priest. My authority is that I'm not just a prophet. My authority is not even that I'm a king. My authority is I am God in flesh. That is by what authority I preach these things. And the Jewish people have to decide whether or not they believe it or not. And you have to decide whether you believe it or not. Is he just the son of David or is he the son of God? I love the way the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. This is how he starts his, uh, his letter to the church in Rome about the gospel. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of dead. Through him, we have received grace, apostleship, to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. And here's ultimately what it comes down to, friends. You have to believe Jesus is who he says he is. That's the only way you'll have enough faith to actually live this way. See, I told you the widow was a great example of how we are to live our lives, but it's actually a far greater example of who? Of Jesus, who comes and gives his bios, his life, everything he has, so that we might be called the children of God. See, I I take the illustration of Charles LeBond a little bit further and say, we can walk across the tightrope on Jesus' back because we know the raging river has already been ceased. If we fall, we fall on a pillow. Because Jesus has come and he's taken my place. He's died on the cross for me. 
And you see, by the way, when, when Jesus asked us about, when we asked Jesus, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? Jesus will say, on the cross. See, Jesus, when he's dying in his last breaths, he says, I'm thirsty. Give me something to drink. He's on the cross naked, beaten, abused. See, when we see somebody who is homeless, who is naked, who is thirsty, who is hungry, we are as Christians to see our Savior on the cross. That in that moment, we have the chance to give Jesus who thirsts a drink, to give Jesus who hungers food to eat. You see, Jesus comes and he does what we cannot do. He lives the life we could not live so that we have both the power and the example. And by the way, that fear of control thing that ruins it all for us, this is what makes Jesus so powerful. Because Jesus isn't a God who's far off saying, trust me when things look out of control. He's a God who came and everything looked out of control for him. The God of this universe died at the hand of Roman soldiers. That's not supposed to happen. We'll read later that when that happened, the disciples all scattered. They lost faith in this Messiah because the Messiah is not supposed to die. And what we find out is when God looked the most out of control was actually the whole plan. He was making it all work out the way it was supposed to. And Molly and Briley, if you guys want to go ahead and come back up as we close. As a Christian who struggles to take off the mask fully, as a Christian who can struggle to trust God with my money when there's not margin, as a Christian who struggles to trust God in all the areas I am to trust God, I can place my faith not in myself, but I can place my faith in a God who's already proven He is who He says He is. And He'll do what He says He'll do. Because He's done it once before in Jesus on the cross. See, the, the story of Charles LeBlonde actually goes on because the day of the event came and everybody was there. It was a big deal. It was in the newspapers and everybody's like, Charles, you're going you're gonna to carry somebody on your back. And Let's be honest, when you're told a human's going to be on their back, a, a 200-pound sack of grain doesn't do it. Like, that's it's not going to be good. So what does Charles do? He looks at his manager, Harry, and he says, well, Harry, you're going to be the one on my back. <laughs> <laughs> and Harry didn't really have a choice, so he got on his buddy's back, and they started to walk across the tightrope. And we know from the newspapers, they got about halfway, and they almost lost it, about fell off. And... Uh, Harry said everything in him, he was trying to counteract the weight of Charles. He was trying to help Charles by, by moving. When Charles would go right, he'd go left. He'd try to, try to help him. And they stopped in the middle when they about fell. And Charles said, Harry, you've got to be dead weight. When I sway, I need you to sway with me. We have to become one together. And he said for the rest of it, Harry would move as Charles moved. And they walked across the tightrope. Friends, Jesus says we must become one with him. I am to have the mind of Christ, to think as Christ would think, to live as Christ would live, to do as Christ would do, and trust in Him and His power alone. Surrender control. Today, friends, I know we all have areas in our life where you know there's a place where you need to surrender. Maybe it's telling somebody about a sin that you never told anybody because you're afraid everybody will run from you. You can tell me, I won't run from you. I've probably done worse. And maybe it's in your money, your finances, say you trust God, but you're not willing to trust him more than George Washington. Maybe it's with your time. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. You know areas in which Jesus would call you to do a little bit more, a little bit differently, and you struggle to trust because you're afraid to give up control. Friends, we are bad kings and queens of our lives. I want you to take off the crown and give control to Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, 
I pray that this message would penetrate the hearts of somebody here today. Lord, that we can trust you as we give up our lives because you've already given up yours and you've shown yourself as trustworthy. Right now, friends, take 20 seconds with your eyes closed. Say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? And then just listen. Father, we need courage. We need strength. The things you're asking of us in this room are scary. You're asking us to trust in you, and I pray that we would. Pray that we would trust fully and totally in what you say without fear of man or fear of what might happen. We would give you complete control over our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing to this God. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.